Welcome to the ACFCS Financial Crime Cast, a briefing featuring the latest guidance, news, and voices from across the financial crime spectrum. I'm Brian Sabuta-Kindle, and on this Crimecast, we're taking a look at fraud and the absolutely enormous Paycheck Protection Program in the United States. We covered this topic a few months ago, and oh boy, a lot has happened since then, so let's dive into it. Let's venture back to what seems like a lifetime ago, April of 2020. Amid shutdowns and with the first wave of the COVID-19 pandemic hitting the United States, Congress passed the CARES Act, authorizing the first allotment of funding for the Paycheck Protection Program, or the PPP as it's commonly known. The program, for those that don't know, provided funding for financial institutions to make forgivable loans or what could be forgivable loans to businesses large and small, allowing these businesses to pay operating expenses and to continue to make payroll through lockdowns. The first $349 billion in funds allocated to the PPP was distributed through financial institutions in just 14 days. Billions more would follow in the coming weeks. While the program provided an essential lifeline for many businesses, the sheer volume and scale of money moving out the door made fraud an inevitability. And already we've seen indictments of several borrowers for PPP fraud and more emerging every day. Is your organization ready for this inevitability of fraudulent PPP loans? And what's your compliance responsibility around the program? In this episode of the Crimecast, I'm very glad to be joined by Terry Luttrell, the Compliance and Engagement Director with Abrigo. She's going to discuss how you, you and your institution can avoid being blindsided by PPP fraud and how you can implement early detection and reporting starting now. So, Terry, thank you so much for being here. Really appreciate you joining us on this edition of the Crimecast. Uh, if you don't mind, just starting out by telling us a little bit about uh, your background and uh, your experience in this space. Sure, Brian. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Just a little bit about me is I have started my career in the banking industry, worked for small and medium to large institutions and I've worked in the space of lending, that's where I started, and then morphed into an AML BSA professional, which I've been for, for quite some time. I really like that space. I love the thin crimes aspect of banking compliance. So that is me. I'm working for Abrigo now. I've been there about eight years in a consulting and compliance and engagement role. So I try to keep our products in line with the regulations. Great. Thank you for that. And and lending is the perfect background for our topic that we're getting into today, which is the Paycheck Protection Program. It is a, a government-backed lending program. So uh, a great experience uh, to be to be diving into this topic. So uh, first off, you know, for those that, that aren't familiar with it, or even for those that, you know, might have been seeing the term in the headlines, but haven't necessarily dived into the financial crime risk, uh, can you just define what the Paycheck Protection Program is, uh, often referred to as the PPP, and why it's ripe for fraudsters? Yes. So just this is going to be brief, because I could do a whole segment on what the PPP relief out to the, the communities. So the program is administered and guaranteed by the Small Business Association. So that's one of the main reasons it's attractive. They were able to get some BS, some SBA lending requirements um, taken out, like you didn't have to have personal guarantees and you didn't have to have collateral. 
So the point was really trying to help the economy keep flowing or get back flowing. So qualified small businesses um, that were suffering hardship are the ones that are eligible for these low interest, maybe forgiven loans. It first rolled out in April of this year, and then we had additional funding because it went so quickly. And at the end of April, there was another funding. So if the qualified borrowers can prove that what these funds were used for, which was payroll protection and rent and normal operating expenses, then they could have 100% of the loans forgiven. So you can see how attractive these would be to fraudsters. And any time you have a surge of $1 trillion placed into the economy for economic relief, fraudsters are going to come out of the woodwork. We've seen this with anything, with FEMA disaster money, just history after history lesson has come out of the woodwork for these guys. They, they prey on the vulnerable. And this global pandemic, I promise you, we're all vulnerable right now in many different ways. So they're just sitting there waiting to claim a piece of the pie. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you referenced just the sheer amount of money that went out through this program, I think. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, I think the original allocation was uh, $349 billion to the program. And it was allocated, not necessarily distributed, but allocated uh, to go out between April 3rd and April 16th. Uh, so right. you imagine in, a, in essentially a two-week period of time, you have... 349 billion uh, in funds moving, you know, through financial institutions out the, out the door, or at least set to do that. It's just a tremendous opportunity for for fraudsters. Um, yeah, so when, I, so when I mentioned the one trillion, that was the CARES Act. So we're we're seeing fraud in the the economic relief, the unemployment checks, and that sort of thing too. So they're they're looking all all different angles to to try to get it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's a great point. It's not just the, the Paycheck Protection Program, which is the the focus of our conversation today, but there's state unemployment, which has been its its own huge issue. Uh, there is the Main Street Lending Program, uh, economic injury disaster relief loan. So there's a a whole wider kaleidoscope of of government relief fraud to talk about. But uh, just for for the sake of of this one topic, as it's big enough, uh, can you provide a quick synopsis of what PPP fraud actually looks like. Um, and, you know, we talked about some of the numbers around this program. Uh, how much of it is actually, or do we think could be fraudulent activity? Yeah, that that's really good. Let me recap a little bit so we have a sense of what kind of volume we're looking at. So with the two rollouts, the second one was not as, as fast and Curious, but still pretty fast. But we have over $5 million, loan, $5 million loans that were approved by the SBA in the PPP program. And that represented 5,460 lenders. Not all of those were traditional financial institutions. We had some many services businesses and some fintechs. But that the total as of August 8th that has been approved is $525 billion. 120 of that remained available as of June. That's probably gone down some now. But the average PPP loan size is $101,000. So they're not huge. These are four small businesses, and they're, they're really helpful when used properly. And then 58% of them are under $50,000. 
So of that $525 billion in approvals, the FBI estimates that 10 to 12% is expected to be fraudulent. And that's based on other natural disasters. This one should not be any different. If anything, it's going to be worse because this pandemic is on a global scale. But what they're finding, what what they've done, the DOJ has, as of September 10th, they had 57 individuals charged and indicted. So that has grown. I've seen some news articles. So it's, it's probably over 60 individuals. That represents $175 million in fraud. And what they're finding, according to the DOJ, is it's being used for luxury cars, home renovations, a lot of very expensive jewelry, watches, adult entertainment, trips to Las Vegas, high-end real estate. So these people, you would think they would be smarter. This was supposed to be replacing paychecks. If, if it all goes out in one lump sum and goes to buy a, a Lamborghini, you might get noticed and you might get indicted, which is a true case. So that's what, what has started out, these, these really high-end ones. But I do want to share one case. When we talk about the, the high dollar amounts, and we know the biggest institutions are seeing a lot of this, but we have a bank um, in Maud, Texas, it has a little bit over a thousand, thousand employees, uh, I'm sorry, a thousand people living there. And they have one bank and they found fraud themselves from a PPP loan. They did participate in the program. So just no small town is too small to be part of this. So I hope all of the listeners know we're not talking about the Wells and the Bank of Americas. We're talking about all financial institutions. And we've known from other things, fraudsters know now that the big banks have the tools to possibly catch them, and they believe the community bankers do not, which that's not true. We've got brilliant investigators out there finding this stuff. Yeah, and to your point on the uh, the the nature of fraudsters that have been you know utilizing or preying on this program, I think we've seen. Uh, probably what some of the low-hanging fruit already getting picked, so to speak, by the the, uh, the Justice Department and by law enforcement. There's been a lot of rather uh, transparent and not very intelligent frauds in the the PPP space. Uh, everything from you know buying expensive cars to uh, using the funds to try to purchase cryptocurrencies and move the funds through cryptocurrencies. But I think. Uh, on the more sophisticated end is where we'll see some of the schemes either shake out over the next several months, even into the next couple of years, uh, or potentially not be detected at all, um, because there's some very obvious things you could do to get caught, but then there's some ways that you can definitely avoid detection. Um, so I think it's I think it's definitely a mix of you know. Uh, of amateurs and uh, new entries on the criminal side and maybe some more sophisticated operations who have been taken advantage, taking advantage of these, uh, these forms of relief. Right. And I know the FBI and the DOJ have both said that the loan stacking has come to surface now. You may have done a credit check on onboarding and you didn't see that they had applied for loans in several different places. But now if you go back and check, you can see one indictment, they had 15 different loans, and they definitely were doing loan stacking, and they were indicted for that. But I imagine there's quite a bit of that that has not been detected yet. Mm. 
That's a, that's a good point. So, I mean, on that note, since we're already on the subject, uh, what types of risk are associated with the Paycheck Protection Program? What should financial institutions be aware of, you know, both currently and kind of looking ahead as more and more of these, these instances of fraud come to light? Right. So there's several sections of risk, um, obviously the bad debt risks. So these are SBA guaranteed and they are also forgiven for qualified, reputable borrowers. But what happens if, if wait, even if there's no fraud in existence, these small businesses applied for the PPP loan because they were in trouble. They needed to stay afloat. Well, this pandemic is lasting a lot longer than any of us would have liked. They talk about that second surge and some communities may needing to, to lock down a little tighter. So this may not carry them forward. So if they don't qualify for forgiveness for some reason, maybe maybe it was fraudulent or maybe they just miscalculated what their payroll was and they didn't meet all the requirements, then you've got a debt to the, the banks that may not be able to be repaid. This SBA has not really gone into to a lot of um, guidance on that, what's going to happen. Yes, it's guaranteed. And I, I believe if the banks do all of their due diligence and document, that guarantee is still going to be in place. But that, I'll, hang on to that thought because I want to talk about that further, what the bank's requirement may be because there's still some unanswered questions about forgiveness and about that SBA guarantee. So the bad debt risk is definitely one. Operational risk, um, due diligence at the beginning because these loans were supposed to be sent out expeditiously is what the government had asked, so they were rushed. I'm not going to pussyfoot around that word. It, they were rushed. So the due diligence is probably lacked. Um, I would go back and look at your onboarding documents that your lenders have done just to make sure that all of your, dot, your I's were dotted and T's were crossed. Compliance risk is a big one. So compliance gaps could have occurred also because of the rushed processing. The BSA requirements were still all intact, all the same, with the exception of needing that beneficial ownership information for existing owners. But you do, for, for new customers, you still had to go through all of the BSA requirements. So was that done? Is there other compliance risk? Is there flood, CRA, anything else that a lending compliance risk would have done because of the rushing? And then the reputational risks, I think, is huge. So what if you are one of those banks, especially a smaller bank, that did not self-detect? They did not report, did not file a SAR, and then someone is indicted for PPP fraud. Now, this is where loan stacking can come in to play again. A SAR could have been filed from a different financial institution. The money was sent to you, um, or you have a loan yourself, either way and you didn't catch yours, or the use of funds came out to your bank, you didn't check the source of funds, so you didn't care that that Lamborghini was purchased with the use of funds. So there's all kinds of reputational risk. You don't want yourself in the paper for that. However, there have been indictments that either an investigator found it or an EDD review found it, and the EDD review is even in the indictment. So that's when you want your name in the paper, when your investigators are that good to catch that. Now, Wells Fargo has a, a big, well, they've been in the paper a lot, 
But they did self-report after the fact um, that the DOJ said, look, something's going on in your institution. So they did self-report that there were a, there's a lot of internal fraud. So you'd have the outside fraudsters in cahoots with many of the employees. Many, you know how large Wells is, so it was spread all over the country. But they had to do a complete review of their employees, and they found quite a bit of internal fraud. So I hope our listeners think about that aspect of it. We we never think our colleagues would do anything like that, but hard times and money make good people do weird things sometimes. It's a great point, and I think you know the internal the internal risk aspect was one that I didn't even necessarily think about when only you know even even when we were uh, uh, doing some of the coverage of the PPP pack when this launched a couple a few months ago, and but it's turned out to be a big one. You know, Wells Fargo is one of the headline ones, but I'm sure there are other institutions where this has occurred or is currently occurring. So um, not just a you know a customer facing risk. Speaking of, you know, uh, whether uh, speaking on the, the, the issue of, you know, fraud and risk, uh, how do you determine if your PPP activity is fraudulent or genuine? You obviously work with a lot of financial institutions. What are some of the ways that you're seeing institutions determining uh, whether this activity is fraudulent or not? And once you do uncover fraud in the program, what do you do? would be done? Yes, that, that's a really good question. Um, so what I'm seeing with the financial institutions, the ones that are detecting it, are doing sort of a look back. So for the fraud and the AML departments in financial institutions for years have talked about should they combine, should they be separate because fraud is more black and white, real time, AML is not. Well, the fin crimes industry together, that's who's catching these. So it is a fraud issue, and your fraud software may catch some of this, but most of what's being found is from your AML model. The spikes and the, the fast movement of funds, the velocity scenarios. So it's extremely important right now that the fraud teams and the AML teams speak together. You don't want two SARS filed from the same institution and showing the world that the left hand doesn't know what the right hand's doing. So please communicate. But what they're doing is doing kind of a look back or a, a review. So you're going to have your PPP portfolio. Hopefully you have a different product code to identify them or some way to tag them. And I would do a risk-based approach, and that's what I'm seeing the, the institutions doing, maybe loans $2 million and above, or if you have PP loans in South Florida, you may not want to go that high because you're in a high-risk jurisdiction. But they, they would go and just do an EDD AML investigation. So they're going to be looking at the applications to, for any false statements. Most of the indictments have false statements on the application, and any time you lie to a financial institution, that's a felony, people. So don't do that. They look at, at the supporting documentation. Um, does it look like Ford's payroll? Does it match what you're seeing in the accounts, the tax, form, tax forms? Because many of the indictments also have doctored tax, tax forms and even payroll amounts. So the PPP loan funding could be two, two times what your payroll amount was. They, 
you should maybe do a site visit, talk to the business, find out how many employees they had, have they still retained them, are they hiring them back, and then balance the payroll with the loan funding. If it's off, which many other times they have been really, really overestimated and able to get more money, then you've got bank fraud and, and all kinds of different fraud, I imagine. Identity theft is an issue. Um, fraud professionals are used to knowing how to look for that. The misuse of proceeds, follow that money. You know where the funding's coming from, but what is the use of funding? If it goes out immediately to a personal account, something's off. If it goes out immediately to another financial institution, it might be time for a 314B request to see what the use of those funds were. That's what most of this is being being caught for, for inflated payroll numbers and watching the misuse of the proceeds. If it's truly for payroll and operating expenses, you would see it go out little by little, or in chunks at least, but not $400,000 for real estate, $200,000 for a diamond ring, et cetera, et cetera. And that, that's like, like you had said, they're not very smart. They're, they're not trying to stay under the, the wire for this, for whatever reason, I don't know. So a few of the other red flags that, that I think the financial institutions should be looking for is new accounts or multiple bank accounts, and they have some abnormal transactions. Um, again, if they ask for the business PPP funds to be put into a consumer account, I hope you said no, but make sure they don't automatically move it to a consumer account. And then the velocity, the movement of money in and out of accounts really quickly, withdrawals made on cash apps like Zelle and Cash App itself. And then any kind of abnormal spikes in your AML scenarios, that should be a look in. You're already looking at your PPP for enhanced due diligence. You're documenting what you're seeing, and you should be able to cover everything. And I will say that I have had the chance lately to train some state examiners, and they told me that they will be going in and asking what is your institution doing for COVID-related fraud? And that will include, what are you doing about your PPP portfolio? So they will want to see what your written procedures are, what you've documented in your onboarding, what your risk-based process was. Now, obviously, if you didn't participate in the program, this won't apply to you. But if you do have a PPP portfolio, maybe you say, on a risk-based approach, we decided to only give these loans to existing customers. We're in a small community. We know everyone in the community. So because of this, we are just doing our normal monitoring uh, of DSA and fraud, and no extra due diligence will occur. You know, just write it down if that's where you are. And then if you're one of those that say risk-based, we're going to look at $2 million and up, just do something to show that you were proactive, and you got in there and really, really tried to, to show the regulators and your community that you're taking this seriously. Yeah, no, that, that's really great advice and some great red flags there. I appreciate that uh, tangible guidance for institutions. Uh, switching gears a little bit to something that I think a lot of you know, in our member community are feeling right now, uh, you know, small businesses, we're not the only ones that felt this squeeze from COVID-19. The pandemic has also brought some, in some cases, uh, substantial budget cuts to financial institutions and their compliance programs. 
And that's meant a lack of hiring in some cases. Uh, it's been uh, meant a, a delay or a lack of purchasing in new software that would have helped identify these for the, some of this fraud, uh, perform lookbacks on loans already given out. So, you know, given that we're in a, a bit of a belt tightening period in general, how can financial institutions leverage the resources they already have? Uh, to catch and report what is, you know, currently and likely to continue to be a wave of fraud. Yeah, Brian, I, I agree. This is a real concern. And on, on the fact that everyone just had to go home and work so quickly at the same time that these funds were being rolled out, we had to spend money, a lot of time on technology in the financial institutions. And this is going to be a time where no additional staff will be, be the norm because we're hoping this is not the permanent situation, so how do we work through it now? So what I would do is look at all of the BSA and fraud functions, all the fin crime functions, and let's say because we know cash has gone down significantly. Maybe you're not doing as many CTRs. Maybe some of, some of those people can be utilized and resourced elsewhere. And they're not going to be in, in trained enough to be an investigator, that, that those are higher level positions. But maybe you can take some of the other things away and give that to them um, and then concentrate on the look back. And again, if it's risk-based, it doesn't say you have to do it all in three months. Just know I'm starting this portfolio because it's going to be around for two to five years. And so you don't have to do it all at once if you have a plan of where you want to be as you get that done. But there's other things that, that because business has slowed in so many areas in the community, you should have some resources that are not as busy as they used to be. And there's always some outsourcing of functions if you need to. Let's say that because of this, you can't get to your normal enhanced due diligence reviews. You might want to do some, some short-term outsourcing just to get those done so you don't get dinged in your next exam for that. But I'm also hoping that the regulators will remember what we're all feeling like right now because it is not normal times. They're living it too. So in two to five years, we don't know what the whole feeling is going to be, but hopefully they're going to be a little bit more generous than we've seen them in the past. Yeah, and I think there has been, you know, some indicators from regulators, um, you know, certain level at least, that uh, there was a level of flexibility. You know, you weren't released from any obligations, but uh, there's been some guidance and some uh, uh, some some letters and that type of thing that have been uh, on uh, hopeful on that note. So I think uh, I think there is a level of understanding there that you know while there's. Yeah, there's no forbearance from, uh, you know, complying with the BSA or with other applicable financial crime law. There's at least, there, as you said, an understanding that this is deeply abnormal times. Right. So we've talked, you know, at least in, so, uh, in some uh, of the conversation around what you do about, you know, an application uh, related to the PPP program or signs you can look for when someone is attempting to uh, apply for or even when they receive a loan. But what do you do after the fact? You know, as we mentioned, most of these PPP loans have been granted. What can be done to detect fraud after funding? Right. So Abrigo has a white paper on our website, abrigo.com, and it's actually a PPP loan checklist 
to, you could call it a quality control, a look back, whatever the institution wants to call it, but it really is step-by-step what we would recommend doing. So after the fact, I would definitely do a negative news search on all of the entities and principals involved, including beneficial ownerships, um, review the records for existence and filing date of the entity. So that's how some of the indictments are, have come out, that they, they show that in one case there is a, an, a restaurant that was in the community news. It failed last fall, like in December. It's boarded up. It was all over the news, and the bank still in March gave them PPP funding. So those are the kind of things that you just need to see. Where we brushed so much, we didn't use our common sense. So if it wasn't in existence before February, that means that some fraudster made a business so they can get PPP funding. Look at the complete credit check to see if they have that loan stacking red flag. If they have multiple inquiries and multiple accounts, maybe they have multiple loans as well. And then are all of the borrowers related to the business? In some of the indictments, they found that they weren't even owners. They were just listed on there to get the PPP funds. So there's definitely quite a few things you can do. Maybe 314Bs are warranted. I know a lot of institutions haven't utilized that, but I think it's going to be really, really worth it going forward. Definitely balance that anticipated payroll cost with the number of employees. And like I mentioned earlier, the site visits, if, if you go somewhere and they say they have 200 employees and you see a desk, you know something's off there. And that really is happening. It's not an exaggeration. So sometimes they have zero employees and they may have said they have 400. So those are some of the things I think after the fact. And those are the ones you want your name in the paper. Hey, we did our due diligence and look what we found. He lied. Right. And yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right regarding the the number of employees, you know, even simple like Google Maps searches in some cases of the address provided for, you know, uh, and these are from cases and uh, indictments have been been public record, um, uh, you know, simple, simple Google Maps searches reveal that a 400 person company, a 280 person company, these types of things are run out of like a studio apartment, um, which just doesn't make sense. Uh, so yeah, yeah, definitely there's some, some, you know, even straightforward things to do uh, to, as you say, have your name in the paper for the right reason. So last question and really appreciate the time and insight on this topic, Terry. Uh, what, do we take away from this going into the future? You know, we had this really unique scenario. I think uh, financial institutions, for the most part, really tried to do their best. What do we learn here? How do we adjust our EDD and CDD procedures to help prevent fraud like this happen in the future? I, I think we have learned a lot. And yes, we may have more community funding come through another bill passed in 2021 if the pandemic starts. So we may have another PPP opportunity, but for sure we're going to have some other kind of natural disaster, FEMA money, or something that this same thing happens to. So even if you have to expeditiously fund these loans, knowing your customer and doing due diligence up front is really critical. You could have caught some of these by looking at when they formed their business, looking at their filing. Now, if they give you fraudulent documentation, use 
use your internet. Now, I know LexisNexis is expensive, it's wonderful. So for big loans, maybe you have a tool like that, but just comprehensive Google searches these days will go so far in telling you what you may need to know, what they're telling you about payroll. Do the calculations yourself. Make sure that they really do have employees. Now, when I say expeditiously, I mean, I know our clients at Abrigo, they worked 24-7 and they were banging those things out. They did not have time to do site visits. So I think it's a balancing act. It's a really difficult one, but I hope we don't forget the lessons that we're learning now because we'll continue to see some really bad things come out. And I'm interested to see what happens when the loans are not, some of the loans will not be forgiven. Is that automatically fraud because they don't qualify? I've heard regulators thinking, yeah, maybe none of those are going to be good. They're gonna, you're going to have to file a fraud star on all of those. Well, not necessarily in my personal opinion because they could have miscalculated or maybe their business just didn't do what they thought. So we'll see how this all plays out. It's been interesting, not in a good way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're, you're totally right. It sounds like uh, this is a topic that's ripe for some more regulatory guidance when uh, the bill comes due, so to speak. Um, but in any case, thank you very much, Terry, for uh, the time and the conversation. Uh, appreciate the insights, and it sounds like you know we should we should all not let a good crisis go to waste, uh, so to right. speak, when it comes to, to taking these yeah, lessons I have forward into a the future. Few little takeaways, Brian. That'll take less than two minutes. Please but just remember: be proactive and partner with your law enforcement. If you think something looks up, pick up the phone and call them. Uh, no community is too small for PPP fraud, so don't think they forgot about you. The fraudsters are everywhere. Remember to look inside your organization in case some of your employees got a little bit too handsy with the funding. And then it's never too late for due diligence. Your regulators will be asking and they will be expecting it. Those are now great final thoughts. And yeah, I mean, you're totally right in regards to all those that, that, that no one is safe, so to speak. Uh, and that definitely when it comes to being proactive uh, on the part of the regulators and examiners, even after the fact, it's very much something that's appreciated. So, uh, Terry, thanks again. This was a great conversation and uh, really appreciate the, the time and the insight. Thank you for the conversation as well, Brian. Take care. Goodbye, everyone. Thank you for listening and uh, see you again on another episode of the Crimecast. Cast.